I would invite you, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, to turn once again to the Gospel of Luke as we continue to work our way through Luke, and turn to chapter 18, and we're going to begin in uh, verse 9 of of Luke 18. Uh, You know, as I was reading this particular uh, chapter, as I was uh, thinking through, I have... I kind of have a weird way of looking at things. And I, I look at this particular chapter, and, and I want to start with kind of that, the, that line that comes from sometimes a bad joke, you know? Uh, a conservative fundamentalist preacher, a crooked IRS agent, and a billionaire approach the pearly gates. And that's kind of what we're going to have here in Luke chapter 18. Uh, and, and if we read that passage and we modernize it, it's very close to what I've just said. You see, it seems that in his research and in his investigation that Luke did, as he was putting together an account of the life of Jesus for his friend Theophilus, all of that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is working to answer a fundamental question. How does one enter eternal life? That was a constant question in the minds of the people in the first century, especially in first century Israel. How do I get there? And and, and we'll see that in a minute because it was all about if I do the right things, is this enough? And before Christ, it was a matter of doing the right things. And yet, you'll read in Isaiah and different places that it's about the heart. It was always about the heart. Even in our own culture, our own enlightened, technological culture, people often want to know, what's next? What's after this life? Have I done enough? I've done a lot of funerals, and uh, I've done funerals for people who don't have a home church who don't have any faith but when they're sitting there at the funeral home they ask the funeral director if they would be willing to have someone come and preach a funeral service for them they they know that they probably need a a church service and I happen to be on the list of a couple local funeral homes and it's very interesting every funeral I've ever done no matter what the person's faith background is there is constant talking about Being in a better place, being at peace, being whole. And it's like, we all want that. We all want that. And and even that comes from people whose last memory of a Bible was one that maybe grandma had, or maybe they were in a church once for a wedding. As humans, we want to know, am I going to be okay when the end comes? Jesus typically takes conventional wisdom and turns it on its ear. Luke's going to give us three instances. We're going to get a story. We're going to get an instance with children. And we're going to get an instant with an individual. And all of them are going to answer the same question, what does it take? Now, I want to give you the sermon in a sentence this morning. 
Okay, I'm going to give it to you at the beginning and again at the end. Here's the sermon. If I were to summarize everything in one sentence, it's this. We find soul fulfillment, and that's S-O-U-L, soul fulfillment when we come to God in humble, childlike faith that results in wholehearted commitment. So Jesus begins. In fact, Luke begins. Luke, in fact, opens telling us why Jesus tells this parable. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Let me just stop right there. Jesus has a specific group of people he's aiming this parable at. And I would say, we all ought to say, oh, wait, is that me? You know, we all want to make sure we are confident in our own righteousness. This is my truth, people will say. This is my truth. And so you have your truth, but I have my truth, and my truth is enough for me. For someone like myself who, A, grew up in the church, and then B, became a vocational Christian worker as a pastor, it's very easy to think, I got it made. My goodness, you know, I've been in church since I was six days old. I mean, why wouldn't God want me on his team? Uh, for those of us who've grown up in the church and maybe are not vocational Christian workers, we can still say, I know all the stories. I know, I, I remember when I was 12 thinking I knew everything there was to know about the Bible. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. That's the conservative preacher one, the one that was righteous, the one that followed all the rules, the one that did all the right things, the one that everybody said, when I grow up, I want to be like him. He has to have the fast track into heaven. The other was a tax collector. We've, we've talked a lot about tax collectors through the book of Luke, and we know that they were the low of the low. They were extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy because they made their money on the backs of the people and they were considered traitors because they they taxed their fellow Jewish citizens to fulfill a contract they had made with Rome and so yeah they were they had it made but they were considered the lowest of the low so you have this guy over here that is is looked at as as righteous as righteous can be and this one over here that's looked at as as low as low can be they went to the temple to pray possibly to prepare themselves to bring a, um, a sacrifice. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. God, this is where the address of my prayer ends. This isn't about you, God. This is a prayer, put that in air quotes, about me. God, I thank you that I am special. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. In fact, really more to the point, God, you're thankful that I'm on your team. You're grateful that I'm even here. 
uh, I have made your team better. It is so clear that you could not carry out your work on earth without me, God. I am so thankful that I am here and that you're blessed by my presence. Aren't you glad, God, I'm who I am? And by the way, if you look at all the other people out there, I'm not like any of them. I'm not even like this slug over here, this tax collector. God, look at all I do. Twice a week, I fast, and I give a tenth of all I get. In other words, God, I'm disciplined, and I am minimally generous, and you are grateful. I read that. It sort of reminded me of an old song. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best I can. What a contrast between the two men. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector who's already been noticed and already been cast aside because the Pharisee does what we all tend to do. We always tend to look down the ladder, don't we? We tend to look and say, well, I've got to be okay with God. I've never killed anybody. I've got to be with, okay with God. I, I'm you know, relatively honest on my taxes. Uh, I'm not as bad as, as other people. I've never had anybody sit down with me and go, I'm a bad person. Most people go, no, I'm a good person. And so as a good person, I shouldn't be going through this. The tax collector won't even look up to heaven. He can't bear to do that. His posture and his actions are of shame and sorrow. His prayer is simple, but it's from the depth of his heart. Fully aware of his sin, fully aware of his unworthiness, he cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He has nothing to offer to God. All he has is the opportunity to maybe gain God's mercy. And Jesus draws a conclusion in this very brief parable. The tax collector went home justified before God. To be justified means to be put right with. It means to be declared righteous. The tax collector who cried out for God's mercy was the one who left in a right relationship with God because he brought nothing to the table but himself. And that is shocking to the people who are listening. I think we ought to go back at times and think about the scandalous nature of the teaching of Jesus. This was shocking. How could someone as a traitor, someone who made their money on the backs of the people, someone as rotten as a tax collector be justified before God? But it was because his heart was humble. God's heart is not touched by my attempts to justify. In fact, 
True humility touches God's heart. True humility is what God wants from you and me. True humility touches his heart. The final point then is driven home. Look at these words of Jesus. Verse 14, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified, referencing the tax collector, justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Anyone who tries to exalt himself, anyone who tries to, as it were, tell God how fortunate he is to be on their team, anyone who thinks they are somebody because of who they are, not giving God any credit, anybody who exalts themselves, God says, I will humble them. In fact, in 1 Peter, we read that quote, God opposes the proud. You want God to be against you? Then just be a person of arrogant pride and you have been, you will be opposed by God. Now, it's good and healthy to know who you are. See, some people go, oh, then I want to get in good with God. Oh, God, I'm a slug. I'm nothing. I got nothing. I can't do anything. Nobody likes me just going to go eat worms. It's the best I can do. Now, that's really a false humility, which is actually pride. Now, true humility knows who you are. A, a person of true humility can honestly tell you, these are the things I do well, and I'm grateful to God for them, and these are the things that I don't do well, and I'm grateful to God that there are other people who do them better than I can. It's a balance. It's good and healthy to be faithful and serve God right where he's planted you. Oh yeah, you might have dreams and hopes and all, but you know what? God will adjust and change your heart to be who he wants it to be when you humbly submit yourself to him. God, put me where you want me to be. Show me who you want me to be. I'll serve you where you've placed me right now. But to do that, to be that humble requires us to be fully dependent upon God and to believe that God is truly enough. And that leads to the second story, the second lesson for today. You see, right on the heels of that, and I think, again, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, arranged his gospel very specifically. People were also bringing babies to Jesus. I'm in verse 15. For him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So some parents were coming along and doing something that was very normal in that time. Jesus is a teacher, he's a rabbi, and they wanted him to bless their children. If you'll recall, all the way back at the beginning of Luke, when Mary and Joseph went uh, to have Jesus circumcised in the temple as a little baby, remember Simeon comes up and he actually reaches out to Jesus, uh, to Mary, and he takes Jesus in his arms and he blesses him. This was very normal. It was very normal to be done. 
And so they're coming, and the disciples get in the way. The disciples say, you know what? Back off, people. This is Jesus. This doesn't fit the image that we want for him. This doesn't fit the agenda that we have for him. Back off. I can just imagine Jesus giving them the look. You know, the look that says, leave me alone and leave them alone. You don't get it. I think moms throughout history have inherited the look from Jesus. Every kid knows the look. And so they got the look. It just says, and Jesus, and Jesus called the children to him. Can you imagine Jesus just getting down and reaching out his arms to the children, just reaching over to that mom and taking that little baby in his arms? Years ago, somebody did some pencil drawings, and they're all drawings of Jesus with children. And there's one where he's sitting there, and there's a couple kids there, and, and one little boy's climbing over his shoulder, you know, and he's just got this smile on his face. Another one, he's sitting there with some teenagers, and they're just talking and laughing. You know, Jesus said, let the children come to me. And other gospel tells, he placed his hands on them. He blessed them. He, he wanted us to understand that children are a living illustration of the faith and dependency that we all should have. There is something naturally entrusting. Children are inherently trusting. And in fact, to violate the trust of a child, to betray the trust of a child, is considered the most unconscionable thing somebody could do. Children are trusting, and Jesus said, let them come to me. Because the point he's making is this, true faith, is expressed in complete dependence. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Hear that properly. In grammar, we call it a simile. He's not saying every child gets into the heaven automatically. He's saying, no, look at the trusting nature of children, and this is what the kingdom of God belongs to. You need to have the same trusting, dependent faith that a child has if you're going to truly understand and receive the teaching of God and the kingdom of God. Jesus is not saying children are perfect and sinless. We all know better. But he's talking about that inherent trust. You know, think about being a kid. For some of you, it's easier than others. As children, we did not typically worry about the electric bill. In fact, as children, we kind of thought mom and dad were a little over the top when they would kind of follow us out into back into, we'd leave a room and they'd come in and turn the light out. It's like, I'm coming back. Well, yeah, but when? You know, we thought, oh, come on. They're just being a little over the top. And then we got our first electric bill. Right? And we go around the house turning out lights. I recall being at breakfast with a young man once. He hadn't been married very long. And uh, we were at breakfast, and, you know, I'm always a coffee guy. He orders milk. And, and he told me as he sat there, he said, this is kind of a treat for me. Man, I used to drink a lot of milk when I was a kid. Do you know how expensive this stuff is? This is a treat. 
Yeah, he was not a child any longer. Children are dependent. They don't worry about the things we worry about. They trust. They trust that mom and dad are going to provide a place to live. They trust that mom and dad are going to provide a, the, the, electric, the payment on the electric bill so they can do their video games. They, they trust. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to understand the kingdom of God, you've got to become like, have that trust in your heavenly Father like a child has because true faith is expressed in complete dependence. I want you to listen to the words of, of a New Testament scholar. His name is Trent Butler. He writes this. If you can't do away with your pretensions, your greed, your claims to fame, your need to dominate and control, your grasp for your identity and power, you cannot be part of Christ's kingdom. Christ constantly seeks those who have no hope of power and position. He seeks the poor, Samaritans, women, children, blind, crippled, lame, tax collectors. These lack the vanity and self-assurance that keep a person from entering the kingdom. True faith expressed in complete dependency. But there was another question on the minds of the people, a question that many people ask. What about those who haven't made in this world? I mean, you know, do they, they have a chance? I thought the gospel was for everyone. So uh, undoubtedly, it's those people who haven't made. They've got the corner on the market. So beginning in verse 18, we have another familiar story. Uh, a story that both Matthew and Mark share as well. A man comes to Jesus. We, we learn in the, in the stories that he's a, a wealthy man. And Luke gives us another detail that the other two don't. He's a ruler. Very significant when you remember Luke was writing to the most honorable Theophilus who probably was some sort of government official. And so this person comes to Jesus and, and, and Mark tells us he comes and he falls on his knees. I'll pick it up here in, in verse 19 or verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. So the man comes and he says, good teacher. And Jesus essentially rebukes him. Because the reality is that term good is a term that was reserved for God. Oh, taste and see, the psalmist says, that the Lord is good. God is the one who declares things good. We read the creation story, and what does God say? It was good. The, the idea, the ascribing of goodness is only to God. So when this man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why are you giving me that particular uh, description? Because you know that that term is reserved for God. Now, Jesus doesn't wait for an answer because I believe implied within his response is the idea, if you're going to ascribe that to me, then you're going to hear my words, and my words are going to be the words, as it were, coming from God. Oh, and by the way, I am God the Son, 
all of that, you know, you're going to listen, so you're ascribing to this. You're, I'm saying nobody's good at, but God, so you're going to hear what I have to say. And Jesus then takes him to that which is very familiar. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. In very rabbinical fashion, Jesus references some of the commandments and in doing so is saying, you need to keep all the commandments. Now, I can just imagine this individual, this ruler, listening to Jesus, and if we take Mark's gospel on his knees, just listening, and in his mind, he's got the checklist going, check. Check, 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 check. I'm in. I'm in. He says, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. <laughs> High five. Don't leave me hanging, Jesus. High five. I've kept all of these since I was a boy. I'm in. I mean, I think he's probably down there waiting for Jesus to pick him up and going, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, you're in, man. Come on, you get to hang with me. But remember, Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its ear. You see, Jesus could tell. He could tell by looking at the person that he was extremely wealthy. And Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Mark's gospel says something very interesting. Mark's gospel says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and his heart was filled with compassion for him. Jesus looked at him and he wasn't angry with him. There was a depth of compassion. He loved him. He wanted him to be part of his kingdom. He wanted him to be a person of faith. He looked at him and he loved him. This man was truly doing his best. There was sincerity there. He wanted to do what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus also saw the obstacle. He saw the obstacle and it was a huge challenge. Something was missing. Something was getting in the way of a, of a complete commitment. You still lack one thing. Hear those words with compassion. Hear those words with a little bit of a challenge. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Divest yourself of everything divest yourself of everything upon which you currently depend and then come follow me sell all you have don't sell it and then take the money and invest it so that you can live off the interest no sell it and give it away to people who can't repay you give it away to people who will may, might even misuse it give it away to the poor so that you are leaning on nothing but me then you can follow me that's a huge ask and the bible says when he heard this he became very sad because he was very wealthy 
The other gospel says he turned and walked away. He wasn't willing to part with those things that he had been depending upon. Now, now when you hear Jesus' instructions, don't hear them as applicable to every single person. Jesus isn't telling all of us here to take a vow of poverty. You see, Jesus sees into every heart. Jesus sees into what we are depending upon. He knew that this man was tied deeply to his wealth. God is not against wealth. Keep that in mind. But God is against us depending upon wealth. You see, the question for this man was, is God good enough and able enough to take care of you without your wealth? Is God good enough? And the man's answer by his actions were, no, I don't think he is. I don't think God's enough. He wanted entrance in God's kingdom, but he wanted it on his own terms. And here's the reality. You and I do not get the privilege of dictating or negotiating terms of entrance into God's kingdom. God calls us into true commitment that's based on dependent faith. And true commitment to God holds nothing back. See, this was a culture of great wealth, of, that, that placed an emphasis on wealth. If you were wealthy, then God's blessing was upon you. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Good people get rich. Bad people don't get rich. That was the mindset. That was the culture. And Jesus addresses this by the next statement. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses hyperbole to make a point. Jesus is not saying that the rich cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's saying it's very difficult when they put all of their dependence on their wealth. And he uses a hyperbole. A camel is a big animal. A camel can hold up to 600 pounds of cargo on its back. A needle is very small. You can't take a big old camel and stuff it through the eye of a needle where thread goes. Now, I know there's a, some out there that say, oh, well, Jesus was talking about uh, a, a gate in Jerusalem called the needle, and every time a camel would pass through, they'd have to stop it, get it down, take all the stuff off, and then it could go through. I side with the scholars who say, I don't think he was talking about a gate, because, see, that made it very possible. Jesus said, it's impossible. It's impossible to depend on your wealth, and to depend on God. You can't do both. Jesus said, and that's where the question that we talked about earlier, those who heard this asked, well, then who can be saved? It's like, well, then I can't make it. I mean, if, if they're wealthy because they have the blessing of God and they still can't be saved, they can't get into heaven, well, it's no, no use for me. Great words from Jesus. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The idea is God teaches us how to depend. Let me share the words of the late Dr. Warren Wiersbe. It's not possessing riches that keeps people out of heaven. It's being possessed by riches and trusting them that makes salvation difficult for the wealthy. 
Wealth gives people a false sense of success and security, and when people are satisfied with themselves, they feel no need for God. That's the point Jesus is making. This man was satisfied with himself, and Jesus said, that's great, but you can't be satisfied with yourself and follow me. You have to humble yourself become dependent on me, remove everything that you're leaning on and lean only on me. Well, Peter speaks up. Lord, we've left all we had to follow you. In other words, what's in this for us? Lord, we've left everything. What's in it for us? What do we get? Lord, we've invested. We don't have anything left. Well, he had a wife and a mother-in-law and everything back there. But, you know, we walked away from our business. We walked away from the fishing trade. We, we have left everything. What's in it for us? Yeah, so often we tend to look at following Jesus as some sort of investment and opportunity in which there's a return now. And Peter's looking for immediate return in the way that I see this. I think we can all be subject to that kind of thinking, especially in this culture that emphasizes materialism and experiences. Jesus reminded him there is reward in eternity, and it will be great, and it will be commensurate with what you believe you sacrificed. He says, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. The point that I think we need to take away is that following Jesus, putting our faith in him, results in a change in what we value. And, and, and it's not about, oh, well then let's see, if I give up my house or if I give away my car, whew, I'm going to have a Benz. I'm going to have a Mercedes Benz in heaven because I gave away my car. No, it's not about that. It's about everything I have here is temporary. And I have it to use it for the glory of God. Yes, God provides for my family. God provides food for us. We have reasonable transportation, all of that. But it's about changing my values. You see, any human effort to try to make things work without giving into God's program falls short. When we give ourselves completely to God, he doesn't just take all our wealth away. If he does, he makes sure we have what we need. But he gives us a completely different outlook. Forty years ago, after Charlene and I got married in Plano, Illinois, went on a little honeymoon, we circled around to my hometown of Salina, Kansas. My little sister was graduating from high school. We wanted to be there for that. And, and my mom and dad's church decided to throw a wedding reception for us. We had that reception in what was, at the time, the largest house in Salina, Kansas. Now, I'll tell you now, 40 years later, it ain't that anymore. But at the time, it was the largest house. It was on the hill. If you lived on the hill, and this is Kansas, so there was only one hill. If you lived on the hill, you were somebody. The man and woman that owned that house, uh, he was a, an inventor, an entrepreneur, a restaurateur, and it was truly seemed like 
everything he touched turned to gold. Right about the time that the house was being completed, this man somehow, well, my mom and dad used to always go to his restaurant and uh, <clears throat> they would, we were older kids then, so they could leave us at home and, and go to the restaurant and they had some of the best onion rings in town and, and it was their time to get away and have a few minutes to kind of debrief every so often. And they got to know the, the chef there and they got to know uh, the owner. And this couple began to ask my dad questions, and eventually he ended up at their home one night answering their questions, and they prayed to receive Christ. And this man told my dad, he said, you know, had I come to Christ before I had started this huge building project, I would have never started it. You know, they became a couple that would use the income that God gave them to support missionaries, to support churches overseas. They did so much with it. And, and you know what? The more they gave, the more God gave them because they were leaning into him. But see, God didn't take away his money, but he changed his mindset toward his money. He changed his mindset and his attitude toward wealth. True humility touches God's heart. True faith is expressed in complete dependence. True commitment to God holds nothing back. A conservative pastor, a crooked tax collector, and a billionaire approached the pearly gates. But it was a faith of a child who led them in and showed them who Christ was. We find soul fulfillment when we come to God humbly in humble, childlike faith that results in wholehearted commitment. The question for all of us is, where am I today? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the reminders today that we've seen. Thank you for the, that reminder of dependency, of faith that's reflected in the faith of a child. May we each, no matter where we are in the continuum of faith, may we each come back to that fundamental reality that it's not about what I do, it's not about what I know, it's about, not about what I achieve. It truly is about my willingness to depend completely on you and to have faith in you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen.